0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, we're continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians and uh, continuing our study specifically in the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to read aloud verses 22 to 24, and I would ask you to please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. And uh, when we're done reading, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord, and we'll respond Together, thanks be to God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, friends, many of you uh, who've known me for a while, you know that I uh, I very much like to walk. I like to walk around while I'm praying. I like to walk around while I'm studying. I like to walk around while I'm on the telephone. Uh, and I especially like to walk around outside when I can. And this time of year is a wonderful time to walk around outside because green things are suddenly reappearing. Uh, flowers are appearing on the trees and in the ground. Uh, suddenly there's life popping up everywhere. And it's it's good to see. Uh, in in some ways, what we've been doing for the last couple months here on Sunday mornings is we've taken a very slow uh course through the fruit of the Spirit, um, is is a little bit like that. We've been taking kind of a walk through the flowers. We've slowed down to consider these certain qualities in the Christian life that, that the Spirit says will be cropping up, maturing, and bearing fruit. If you think of the Christian life as a garden, we've slowed down to look at these fruit of the Spirit, these certain individual flowers that are to be growing there. And you'll notice we've come to the last one this morning, the ninth one, and it is self-control. Now, some of you, when you realized that the sermon was about self-control, maybe when you saw the bulletin cover or uh, just now as I'm talking to you, you may have thought, oh boy, self-control, one of my least favorite topics. Uh, Sometimes self-control, when we talk about it, can be Uh, downright discouraging, if not just frustrating. The term itself can invoke uh, sort of a downcast attitude because our our lack of self-control and, frankly, our continued attempts to be people who are self-controlled and our repeated failures um, often is the source of shame for us and discouragement and sometimes even hopelessness. I want to suggest to you, though, that the fact that self-control is listed here among the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian life is good news for us and it is encouraging news for us. The fact that it's listed here among the fruit of the Spirit is an indication that self-control is a part of the grace given to us by the God who saves us. It's a part of that imperishable inheritance that is given to us. A part of the Spirit's work in us is self-control. And what that means is for the Christians, self-control is actually something that's possible. As Christians, we can be people who are increasingly characterized by self-control. This fruit can grow in us. That's what the text is telling us. That it's not just for certain people with a certain temperament. It's not just people that are inclined towards being hyper-disciplined. It's not just for certain personalities or certain circumstances in life. But that as Christians, we can be people who are increasingly characterized by self-control. Here, as we look at this last fruit of the Spirit, well, I want to give you three points, three components that are necessary for cultivating Christian self-control in our lives. You might think of these three points as, if we're thinking of this as a a plant growing in the garden of our lives by the work of the Spirit, these three components necessary, the sort of like good soil, fresh water, warm sunlight, the things that a plant needs to grow. These aren't all the things, but I'm going to give you three things that we can be, Looking to that, are necessary for cultivating spirit wrought self control in us. And the three things are these first, self control can be cultivated in us by understanding what uniquely Christian self control is. Second, self control is cultivated in us when we are growing in our knowledge of Christ's will as revealed in his word. And third, self control is cultivated in us when we are growing in our trust in Christ's wisdom and his goodness. Now, we're going to look at those those three in turn. And I would encourage you children as you're as you're drawing in your bulletins, as you're uh making little little pictures and doodling, maybe this morning you ought to draw a garden growing. Draw some flowers, draw some vines, some trees bearing fruit, draw the sun shining on them. Uh, Because this fruit of the Spirit uh, is something glorious that God is bringing about in His people. Now, the first point that I want to make is that in order to be self-controlled, in order for self-control to be growing and thriving in us, we have to have a clear understanding of what uniquely Christian self-control is. When we talk about self-control as Christians, we are not talking about it as exactly the same thing the world is talking about. And the world has a lot to say about self-control, doesn't it? Especially when you look through history. Many societies, philosophers, religions have extolled self-control as a virtue. Plato goes into great detail about the the virtue of self-control. Aristotle has a whole book about self-control and self-governance. And in fact, uh, many philosophers, I mean, they're using the exact same word that Paul is using here. Uh, In the original Greek, they're referring to to self-mastery when they talk about self-control. They're talking about bringing the passions, the natural impulses and inclinations, bringing the desires under the control of my own reason, of my own responsibility, my own duty, my own will. Not being controlled by them, but me being in control of them. Self-mastery. Now, of course, when Paul says self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, he is talking about something slightly different. Uh, The very fact that he refers to it as a fruit of the Spirit and not a fruit of exclusively human effort indicates that he's talking about something different than Plato and Aristotle are talking about. Paul is talking about something in the Christian that it does not begin and end with me and my will and my reason, but rather it begins and ends with Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is something that is wrought by the presence of the Spirit in me. It is not me being my own master, but rather it is me having Christ for my master. This is the fundamental difference between the world's concept of self-control and the church's concept of self-control, true biblical self-control. I am not trying to bring my passions and my, incl- my natural inclinations and impulses under my own control, but I am rather bringing them under Christ's sovereignty, under his mastery, under his lordship. The New Testament is very clear. The Christian is not his own master, but Christ is. He does not belong to himself. He was bought for a price. Thus, for him, for her, self-control is about bringing our passions, our impulses under Christ's lordship. You see this all over the place in the New Testament. I think if we're looking carefully, uh, you think of the the well-known text in Romans chapter 6 beginning with verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. he's he's, he's not saying... You know, don't let your passions master you, rather master yourself. He's saying, don't let yourself be devoted to your lusts and your sin, but rather give yourself to God that he might be your master. It's a similar idea in a few chapters later in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 where the apostle Paul exhorts the Christians there in Rome by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship give yourself to him and in first Peter chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15 the apostle Peter writes as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be set apart for him and unto him. Uh, one of the um, one of the Puritans, a man named Richard Baxter, in his m- massive volume, a Christian Directory. He describes his understanding of Christian ethics and self-government in this way. He says that, I'm going to paraphrase, I thought about bringing this massive book up here just to show you what large books I have, Um, but (laughs) uh, I did not do that. (laughs) Um, Baxter talks about man, humanity, men and women made in God's image, being made with certain natural passions and impulses built into us, which are good, which are a blessing to us and honoring to the God who made us under his sovereignty. You know, a a love of pleasure, a dislike of pain, an appetite for, for food, for sexual intimacy, these things that are all good and serve an important function under his lordship. I don't like feeling pain. I don't want to fall off the cliff. Those kind of things are just important on a natural level in human beings. And we're made that way. But all those natural passions are made to function under the lordship of Christ, who is our God. And in the fall, when humanity, when our first parents and we with them, rejected the lordship of Christ, denied the authority of God, took him off the throne, in a sense, by our rebellion, we removed that lordship. And these passions that were to be governed by Christ instead burst their bounds and began to govern us. Like like streams that flood and overflow their banks, these natural inclinations and appetites have burst the limits of God's good lordship and have flooded man's heart. It's ironic, really, that, that human man, in an attempt to rule himself rather than having God rule him, has made himself a slave to all these passions, you see. He doesn't rule himself. Rather, he's ruled by every whim of his natural desire. Like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame. They're governed by these appetites. Slaves, we are apart from Christ. But in Christ, this has changed. Part of the great salvation given to us at the cross is that we who are Christians are no longer in rebellion against our God, but rather we know him as Lord. We recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, my heart, my soul, all creation. And therefore, it is my desire to be ruled by him, not to rule myself but rather to have myself, to have my passions, my, my natural inclinations all brought under submission to my Lord and to serve him. That's the difference between the world's concept of self-control and a Christian's concept of self-control. The Christian is not trying to get himself under control. The Christian is trying to surrender his life to his Lord, who has bought him with his own blood. Self-control for the Christian is therefore the work of actively, deliberately bringing our passions, our desires, our impulses under the lordship of Christ, so that they do not rule us, but rather He rules us, and we serve Him for His glory and for our good. You see what I'm saying? Let me give you a couple examples of this um well i'll speak in broad categories there's a lot of nuance when we talk about these things but let me talk about a few natural desires and inclinations uh as ruling us ungoverned versus being governed by our lord and for his glory and for our good these are complicated things and i'm going to paint with a broad brush so bear with me here think about the for one the the desire for the the pleasure of sexual intimacy Which is part of who we are as created beings. Apart from the lordship of Christ, left to our own devices, this desire, very natural desire in us, bursts its bounds and begins to govern us, attempts to govern us, and leads to all kinds of dangerous and damaging behavior, adultery, fornication all kinds of selfishness that in the end results in slavery. Where I am not a master of these things, but rather they are a master of me. We've, I'm looking at people, I mean, we've, we've been here on this earth long enough to, to see what that looks like. Right? Where I, I cast off the fetters and instead I am a slave. But under Christ, under his lordship, submitted to him, In the bounds of what he has said is good in his will, a a marriage between a man and a woman, what does this result in? It results in fidelity. It results in a a mutual submission and service to one another and great blessing, you see. Think about the desire for the the pleasure of of food. God's done a good thing in giving us bananas and given us things that are delicious to eat on the earth. He didn't have to do that. We would have eaten it anyway, so we didn't die. But, oh, he made it good, didn't he? And not only did he make it good, but in his providence, he's given us the ability to make it, to take the elements he's given and to make them even better. Apples are wonderful. But what my wife does with apples when she puts them in a pie, well, Not an improvement on God's creation, but part of his design, you see. Well, apart from Christ's lordship, my desire for the pleasure of eating food, that can become, it can rule me. It can become gluttony. It can become a overindulgence. It can lead to sickness. It can even lead to death, can't it? But what is it under him? Recognizing him as the Lord who gives good gifts to be received with thankfulness. Well, submitted to his lordship, it it results in gratitude, results in thankfulness. It results in a a dependence upon him who provides for me. And it becomes the means of grace. Think about the natural desire that we have for justice. This is part of of who we are and the way he's built us anyway. A, a, A desire for things to be right. Well, apart from the lordship of Christ, that can become a controlling kind of anger in me. It can become a frustration with things not being the way they ought to be. And over time, it can become a bitterness. It can become a cynicism that controls me and a hopelessness about the world. But what is it under Christ? Submitted to Christ, submitted to his lordship, recognizing him as the Lord. What's put back in its bounds and it becomes more like a zeal for righteousness. In fact, compassion is the fruit of a desire for what's right under the lordship of Christ. I want things to be the way they ought to be and I have a desire in my heart to see it that way. I'll give one more example here quickly. It is very much natural for us to be to have an aversion to pain and loss. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to experience loss. Again, this is a good, this is a good gift of God, right? That's, that's protective to me in a way. Well, apart from the lordship of Christ brought under his mastery, that natural inclination to be averse to pain and loss, well, that, that can become a, a sinful con- desire for control, a need for control that ends up controlling me. It can become a, a fear that governs me and makes me a slave. It can become an anxiety that chews away at me. Whereas under his lordship, that same inclination looks more like ca- right caution, looks like prudence looks like care, looks like good stewardship. You see how good it is to be under his care. You see, you see how just a few moments ago, our brother's standing up here saying, brothers and sisters, let's pray how to use the resources God has given us together rather than wringing our hands and saying, what are we going to do? Right. He's the one that provides for us. What a good gift it is. We want to be prudent, we want to be good stewards. He's wired us that way, and he's redeemed us that way, but under the Lordship of Christ, it glorifies him rather than enslaves us. This kind of, of self-control, bringing our passions and our inclinations, our impulses under the Lordship of Christ, is a central part of the Christian life. It is a fundamental part of discipleship. And in Second Peter chapter one, when, when Peter is listing those virtues that you're to, you know, add this, add brotherly love to this, add knowledge to this. Self-control is is on his list. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul goes into some detail talking about how he, he controls himself and governs himself. He runs the race so as to win the prize. He doesn't just box as one beating the air, but he's, he's careful about this. In Acts chapter 24, when Paul is reasoning with those in authority there as he's been arrested, says he reasons with him about self-control as a central part of Christian discipleship. And of course, self-control we see exemplified in our Lord Jesus. We won't go into detail about this. But is that not what you see in the Garden of Gethsemane? He He has the natural inclination to flee from the trial. The natural desire to have the suffering pass from him. But what does our Lord Jesus do? He actively, willfully, deliberately brings himself under submission to his Father and sends his will up under his in order that the God of heaven be governing him. Friends, is this a central part of your discipleship? Actively, deliberately. Bringing your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ day after day after day. Well, in order to be a people characterized by self-control, by the same quality that we see in Christ, we hear spoken of in the New Testament, we've got to understand and remember what it really is. That's what I'm saying. We've got to remember that self-control for us is a matter of being mastered by Christ not mastering ourselves for our own benefit. Christians are not just people who try to do what is right and live good lives according to our own judgment, our own common sense or the standards of the day. I mean, you know that your judgment, the standards of the day, common sense can be very fickle, full of holes, untrustworthy. Rather, we are those who willingly submit ourselves to what our Lord has said is good, and His judgment is reliable, it is trustworthy, it is consistent. And for that reason, the the second thing I want to point out to you, a a necessary part of our being self-controlled in a Christian sense is knowing his will. And therefore, if we're to grow, to be growing in self-control, we must have a growing knowledge of our Lord's will as it is revealed in his word. If a right understanding of what Christian, decidedly, specifically Christian self-control is, is like good soil for the plant to grow in, you might think of this as as fresh water to be poured on this plant that it might thrive. If we're going to grow in self-control, we must have a growing knowledge of our Lord's will as it's revealed in his word. Friends, we've got to be people of the Bible. We've got to be deeply, thoroughly Bible people. To have an ever-expanding, deepening knowledge of it. Our Lord's will is revealed first and foremost in His Word. And so we, if we're to be people who are characterized by a conformity to His will, we must be a people who are knowledgeable of His Word. We've got to be people that read it and hear it and study it more and more again and again our whole lives. We've got to be people who meditate on His Word day and night if we're going to be like trees planted by streams of water that bear fruit in season this good fruit of self-control. One of the dangers I think of being a a culturally bible saturated church like this one, I mean there's a reason that the sign outside says teaching the word on it because that is a priority of Grace Church and it has been from the beginning and it will continue to be. There is a danger though, I think, in being And having a cultural value of teaching the Word, not that we shouldn't, but we can begin to rest, assuming that we already know everything because we are those who teach the Word so much and listen to the Word. We can begin to think that we know what's in the Bible. And we don't need to pay careful attention and listen. I've heard so many sermons. I've read it so many times. I've read that chapter before. I've heard this. I know it all. And it can begin to be like jumping through hoops just because we're supposed to. We can assume we know what the Bible says, what our Lord's will is. But friends, let me remind you that you don't know Him like you think you do. We don't know His will like we think that we do. I mean, I, this, this study in the fruit of the Spirit has reminded me of that. I mean, we've spent nine weeks now studying these nine words, and we're only scratching the surface of it, but think about it things that we've considered about Christ's character, about his will for us, about what should characterize the church. There's so much more here than we realize. And all the Bible is that way. Just recently at our house, we've been, we were reading through the, the final chapters of Exodus, where there is such detail given to how the tabernacle is to be built, how Aaron and his sons, their, their priestly garments are to be constructed. And it dawned on me again as we're talking with the kids how much God cares about how he's worshipped, how much God cares about what goes on here Sunday mornings. It's easy for me to feel like we're just checking the box and going through it because we do it week after week, but all oh, friends, he cares so much about how his people worship him, because this is what the universe is about. We need to be reminded of these things, and more than reminded, we need to be further and further instructed. We don't know his will like we think we do. And we often mistake our own judgment and common sense for his will, and we end up following our own will rather than his some of you who are parents, you've had this experience where you're giving your kids some instructions, and before you finish the instructions, they run off to do what you're telling them to do because they think they know what you're going to say. And they end up doing something a little bit different than what you were going to say because they didn't quite know it as well as they thought. That that is often what we do. We think we know what God wants. We think we know because we know what we want. We know what we think is good, and we assume he's like us, but honestly, he isn't always, is he? He's very different. Surprisingly so sometimes. So we've got to be a people. A vital step in becoming people increasingly characterized by self-control is to be more and more people of his word. With our knowledge of his will, as it is revealed in his word, growing more and more deeper and broader all the time. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says we're to hold fast to the word of life. In Colossians chapter 3, we're to to let it dwell richly in us. And John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus says that that we're to abide in his word and have his word abide in us. Friends, if we're going to be people characterized by self-control, avail yourself of the means given in the church to hear his word again and again and again. The church is full of opportunities. It's full of, of Bible studies, of, of prayer meetings where the word is read and discussed. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, there's a reason that we have people stand up to read the Bible and talk about it and give our attention back again and again and again to it. We don't know what it says, though we may have read it a hundred times. There is yet more in this word that we might learn. We've got to be people who are committed to letting the roots go deep, to, to being marinated in the truth of God prayerfully, humbly, again and again and again, if we're to know His will, that we might submit to His will and not just run off on our own paths. I do have yet one more component for you, though. If we think about a, a clear knowledge of what Christian self-control is, we think about an increasing knowledge of what our Lord's will is, uh, you know that that's not enough. It's not enough just to know His will. There are many who, who have a knowledge of His will, and yet the, the fruit of self-control is not evident in them. The knowledge of Christ's will must be accompanied by faith. That's the third point that I want to give you. In order to be growing in self-control as Christians, we must be growing in our trust in Christ's wisdom and his goodness. If, if a clear understanding of what uniquely Christian self-control is, is like good soil, if if a knowledge of our Lord's will and his word is like fresh water, you might think of a, a, a growing trust in Christ's wisdom and goodness as the sunlight that shines on this plant. If here is an essential and often neglected component, I think, in Christian self-control, that is faith in Christ. And by faith in Christ, I do not mean faith in his existence or in his authority only, but I mean specifically in his character, in his wisdom, in his goodness, that what he commands us is a command coming from a wise and good Lord, and what he commands us is wise and good. You you all know the difference between knowing what you're supposed to do and trusting that what you're supposed to do is good and wise, right? I'll give you an example. All all the kids in my house know that I don't want them to touch the stove. Their mother and I do not want them to reach up and touch the stove. Some of them, by experience, know that I don't want them to do that because they're going to hurt themselves. And my instruction to them is wise and good and I've given it to them because I love them and I don't want them to get hurt. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? Right? Whether you're a kid reaching up to touch the stove, or whether you're whether you're an adult thinking about God's commands about marital fidelity, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? If we're to be people who are growing in our self-control as Christians, we must be people who are growing in our confidence that what Christ has commanded us is wise and good. And he's given us his commands because he loves us. Now, some of that does come from experience. I'll, I'll tell you, I have known for years that Christ has commanded me to forgive as I have been forgiven. I've known from the earliest days of my Christian life that that was was his will for me. But all friends, as I've lived more and more years as a Christian, the goodness and the wisdom of his command to forgive as I've been forgiven has weighed more and more on my heart. It is such a good thing that he's commanded me to forgive. It's not arbitrary. It's so wise. And he has commanded me to forgive, to be faithful, to be disciplined in forgiving to forgive everyone because he loves me and he gives me good instructions. You see what I'm saying? Some of you know his commands, again, to be be faithful in marriage. That's not an arbitrary command. Oh, it is a good command. It is a wise command given by a Lord that loves us. His, his commandments that we be, be self-controlled when it comes to, to things like, like alcohol, that we not give ourselves over to drunkenness, some of you know very well. This is not arbitrary. This is good and wise, what our Lord has commanded us, and he's given us these commands because he loves us. You have a sense of what 1 John chapter 5 says. His commands are not burdensome. Or what the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11, My my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are good commands I've given you. But Good news, though, for us, the hard way through experience is not the only way to learn that. The burned hand does not teach best in the Christian life, I think. But rather, the cross teaches the best. We don't have to get burned by disobedience to know that his commandments are good. We rather can look to the cross and see that his commands are good. Because when we see him there dying for sinners, when we see him there giving his life for us, we see his heart. We see how good he is. We see how merciful and how faithful he is and how we can trust him. We can see that he is for us. When we see the Son of God Himself pouring out His blood to die for me. To look to the cross enables me to actively trust that He has my good at His heart. Then I can trust Him and it is wise to submit my own will to His. I think that if we're to be people characterized by self-control, friends, we've got to have a, a clear idea of what this is. It's not about getting a hold of myself about giving myself to him. He's my master. We've got to have a clear idea of what he wants. It's not just whatever whims I have and what I think is common sense. It's what he said in his word. And we've got to be believing more and more that he is good and what he said is good. It's not arbitrary. It's not just I do it because I should, but my Lord is wise and his will is good. And all friends, it brings him great glory when we look to the cross when we believe him who died there for our sins, and when we willingly give ourselves to him in trust and obedience, when we say, I am not my own, but I am yours, and I would live as yours in the big things and in the small things. I'll, I'm going to end with a, an illustration from, from last night. Uh, you can you can take one look at me and see that one of the areas where I battle with self-control is the enjoying the pleasure of food. And I keep careful track of how much I eat every day. On my phone, I have this little application that if I go over the line, the little teeny man that represents me gets very fat. Right, So I'm careful, and I... We went to a birthday party yesterday, and I had some cake and ice cream, and I was at the limit early in the day. So I was not eating more than I was supposed to, but then last night, we were at home, we were taking some groceries in, and I was putting some groceries away, and in one of the grocery bags, there was a a pack of Oreos, and you know Oreos are the best cookie. Uh, I think they're the best cookie. So I had this pack of Oreos, and I was, in the moment, I was alone in the kitchen with a pack of Oreos, and I hadn't eaten anything in hours, hours. And I was thinking, should I? Should I eat some Oreos? Surely I walked enough to burn some calories that would have brought that thing down again. Maybe I have space for some. Is that what I want to do? Is that not what I want to do? Well, it just so happens that I'd was i spent part of the day preparing a sermon on (laughs) self-control as being not mastered by my own will, but being mastered by my Lord's will. So there in the kitchen with the Oreos in my hand, I thought, well, I'm not my own. It's not up to me. What would my Lord have me do? He's given me good gifts. He's given me delicious things to eat. He's given me pleasure in this life. He's also given me a body, hasn't he, to be a steward of. He's given me a wife and children and responsibilities. He's he's given me this this commandment that I'm I'm not to take life, right, but to be life-giving. And at this point in my life right now, I don't know that an Oreo would be all that life-giving. And not only that, But an Oreo isn't really what I need to satisfy my soul, is it? He is. He satisfies my soul. Not some cookie squirreled away in the kitchen. But the Lord Jesus who sits on a throne in heaven, I don't need that. What I need is him. And so there in that moment in the kitchen, I submitted myself to the lordship of Christ. It is no sin to eat Oreos. Oh, but self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And He's given me good gifts and given Himself to me. We know that the will of our Lord is good. In fact, the table right in front of us is evidence of it, isn't it? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together now. Our Lord who gave Himself so freely for us that He might sustain us. Surely His commands are good and not burdensome for us. And it is for his glory and for our good to say, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good gifts you've given. We thank you for food. We thank you for relationships. We thank you for the way that you've designed us. But, oh Lord, we thank you most of all for your own presence in our lives for the gift of your lordship, for the gift of your redemption, that you would be our Savior. Thank you for giving your body. Thank you for pouring out your blood that we might be forgiven. Have mercy on us, Lord, and oh, may we be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.